And for the rest of us, can you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. I got a little riddle for you this morning. Seeing is believing. Seeing is not believing. Not seeing is believing. Not seeing is not believing. Truly seeing is truly believing. Oh, you've got to be kidding me, James. <laughs> I have it on my notes. <laughs> seeing is believing. Seeing is not believing. Not seeing is believing. Not seeing is not believing. Truly seeing is truly believing. Hopefully we'll try to figure out this riddle today. Um, as we come to this passage of scripture. Uh, so he entitled this, Truly Seeing is Truly Believing. Some questions I want you to consider as we come to this passage of scripture. The first one I want you to consider is, what does it mean to follow Christ? Now we're going to dovetail off of what uh, Pastor Doug preached on last week. And if you remember, he preached on the rich young ruler, and then he talked about uh, the cost of following Christ. So we're going to grab onto the end of that, and then move into this section here. What does it mean to follow Christ? What does it cost? And what do we get when we follow Christ? The second question I want you to consider this morning is this. What does the gospel say to those who have been oppressed, to those that have been marginalized, to those who have been victimized, those that are in pain in this world? What does the gospel say to those that are oppressed? The, the next thing we want to figure out is what does the gospel say to those that are the oppressors, the ones that do the victimization, the ones that do marginalize other people, the ones that hurt other people? What do we say? And then I really want to try to figure out why did Christ come here? What's his purpose for coming? Those are some real important questions I hope we, we can figure out this morning. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18 and read with me in verse 28. Actually, this goes back to verse 27. But he said, Christ said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brother or parent or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that has been written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. So, seeing is believing, or truly seeing is believing. So, at the end, remember last week, Pastor Doug was preaching on this rich young ruler, and this rich young ruler had come and asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you remember Jesus gave him a list of standards that he would need to follow. Now, was Jesus saying that this man could be saved by that? Of course not. He wasn't saying that this man could actually be saved by keeping these rules because he knew that this man could not keep these rules. 
But what Jesus was saying was this, that for someone to enter the kingdom of heaven, they would have to follow the law perfectly. And this man failed to. And what Jesus was able to do was to expose the very heart that at the very heart, he failed to follow the law because he failed to even follow the first several commandments because he had another God other than the true God. And what was confusing to the disciples and what was confusing to the people is this, is that if this rich man who was healthy, he was wealthy, he was religious, he was powerful, if he couldn't be saved, who in the world could be saved? And we have the same dilemma today because I think that most people look and they say that God is blessing this person because they're healthy or they're wealthy or they're wise or they're powerful. And they assume that this person has salvation. And Peter looked and said, okay, well, if it's not the riches, we've given up everything to follow you. And it points us to a couple of things I want you to consider as we look, before we look at these two stories of a blind man being healed and Zacchaeus being saved. The first thing I want you to consider is this, that in verse 28 through 34, Christ is telling us that following Christ means that you have to be separated from something. Separated from something. That the rich man chose not to be separated from his wealth, and that's the reason why he continued to struggle. He made his wealth his God. And salvation in Christ, following Christ, means that you have to move away from something, turn away from it. But there's a second thing that Jesus is telling us, I believe, in this passage. is not only that we have to be separated from, but we need to set him apart. That he has to be holy. He has to be the treasured one. And then the third thing he tells his disciples and he tells us is that following Christ not only means that we're separated from and setting him apart, but the third thing is it's a path of suffering. Well, let's look at it a little bit more uh, closely. Following Christ means that we are going to be separated from something. What does it mean to be separated from something? It means that we turn away, we, we forsake, we reject. I'm done with this. In Jeremiah, it says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the well of spring water, and they have hewned out their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. And, and what what God was saying through Jeremiah was this, that the people, instead of going to the spring where, from him, where there is just this wonderful, pure water that God can give us, we're going to the muddy banks here and pulling out water from the muddy banks. And instead of getting the purity that we could have, we turn to something filthy. Well, in essence, that's exactly what Christ is saying to us, that if we don't separate ourselves from the things of this world, like this rich man needed to separate himself from the things of this world, we're never really going to find real purity and hope and healing in life. But it's not only separating from something, it is also setting him apart. What the rich young ruler failed to do was he failed to set Christ apart as treasured, as valuable, as esteemed, as honored, as prized, as treasured. You know, the pearl of great price, the thing that we would give up anything for, he held on to his money rather than held on to Christ. In the two stories we're going to see today, these two people gave up everything for Christ. But not only is it separated from something, and not only is it setting him apart, but he tells us that the path of following Christ is a path of suffering. 
one of my favorite characters in the Bible, outside of, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, character in the Bible is the, the Apostle Paul. And it's interesting that at his conversion, I don't know if you remember, in Acts, when he was converted on the road to Damascus, God says, I have saved him and I am showing him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Can you imagine that being the call to your conversion that you're going to be saved and it's going to be a pathway of suffering? And that's what Jesus wanted to remind his apostles, that we're on the road to Jerusalem. We're on the path to suffering. That the Messiah that you think about that is going to be healthy and wealthy and wise and take over all power here on this earth is not the Messiah here. This is the Messiah that is going to go by the path of a bloody cross. And if you're following me, you're going to be following me to Jerusalem. You're following me to that path of suffering. He says here, he says in verse 31, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. What lays ahead in Jerusalem? The cross. See, we're, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that has been written about me or about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. What Jesus is arguing here is this, that it has been predicted, and he's predicting, he's saying, trust me, this is what's going to happen. And he is saying that the prophets of old have called about and looked ahead to see that I'm going to go down the path of suffering. Turn with me to Psalm 22 here for a moment. In Psalm 22, God is reminding us that there is this path of suffering. And this path of suffering is the suffering that Christ was going to have to endure for us. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry day, but you did not answer. By night, but I find no rest. You are wholly enthroned and praises as Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and they were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am warm. I'm a man scorned by my mankind and despised by people. All who see me will mock their mouths at, uh, at me. They wag their tails or wag their heads. He trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. A little bit later on in verse um, 16. For the dogs encompass me. And a company of evildoers surround me or encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat at me. They divide my garments among them. And my clothing they've cast lots for. Does that sound familiar? It sounds very familiar because that's some of the exact same words and same exact things that happen at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. It says in 53 verse 3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. As the one whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that was upon him 
brought us peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. What, what Jesus is saying is this, that you can trust me on this, that I'm going down a path of suffering, and if you're following me to Jerusalem, it's a path of the cross. But then he also says that the prophets of old, whether it's the psalmist or Isaiah or the prophets, wrote and said hundreds of years in the future, there's going to be a cross. There is going to be a Messiah who's going to hang on a bloody cross for you and for me. So Jesus told us that his time was predicted. He told us the prophets told us about it. But going back to Luke chapter 18, he tells us that it's going to be a painful cross. He says that they will deliver us over to the Gentiles or deliver him over to the Gentiles. Um, Jesus has, if you've been with us as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, oftentimes he has many times, six or seven times, he has alluded to his um, crucifixion. On three specific occasions, he has specifically said that he was going to die on a cross here. Um, and this is the first time in the Gospel of Luke that he says that he's going to be turned over to the Gentiles. So he adds that. He, he tells the people that he is now going to suffer under Roman persecution. And he's going to suffer under a cross. And what they were going to do was they were going to deliver him over to the Gentiles. He was going to be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, killed. But then he says this, I want you to trust me that we're going on a path of suffering. I want you to trust me and trust the word because the word has spoken about this. But he says, I want you to trust in this, that once I rise again, something dramatic is going to happen in your life. One of the reasons why I actually believe the gospel is because if you look at the apostles, their lives have radically changed after the, after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You ever think about it? Peter, who couldn't even stand up the night that he was being betrayed to say that he is a believer in Christ and a follower of Christ after the resurrection, he's preaching a gospel message where 3,000 people are being saved. He's being imprisoned. And every one of the apostles, except for John, are going to be martyred. And John is going to be imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos for the rest of his life. There is something radically that has changed. And it comes down to this, that their lives have been changed because they got the gospel. The gospel has transformed their lives. And the gospel is validated in the fact that Christ died on a cross, but then he rose again. Now, I want you to keep those themes in mind as we look at these two stories that follow. The first story is about this man, a blind man. We see him in verse 35. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, now Jesus is on a path to Jerusalem, and he's going to go through Jericho to get to Jerusalem. So he's on the path to Jerusalem. He's, he's drawing near. It says a blind man was sitting by the roadside. So the first thing we find out about this man is his physical condition. He's blind. Now, we're not told if this man is blind at birth. We're not told if he is blind um, because of disease. We're not told if he's blind because of injury. We don't have no idea. But we know that he is blind, his, spiritual, his physical condition. But we also know that he's poor. That's the second thing we find out about this guy because it says here, the blind man was sitting by the roadside, and what was he doing? He was begging. He was begging. So as he was begging, and really, honestly, now what we have today, for those that are blind, um, we have a number of opportunities, and we, we have um, tools that are given to those that struggle with eyesight today. But in this culture, oftentimes somebody who was blind would not be educated, 
would not be employable, and the only opportunity that they would have is to beg and expect that other people would help them because they couldn't work and they weren't going to be educated. So he's begging by the side of the road, and he is crying out for people to care for him. But there's something that's different about him. It says, and hearing the crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. Now, that line got me this week. What does it mean that he heard the crowd going by? He's in Jericho. Crowds go by all the time. What was different this time? People are going by all the time, and he's begging for people to give him money. What is different on this occasion? What's different on this occasion is that Christ is coming by. You ever notice that if somebody has a disability, that sometimes they compensate with that disability because they become better in a certain area? That somebody that is blind maybe has better hearing, better taste, or maybe somebody that struggles with um, intellectual issues may struggle, may be better attuned emotionally and they can connect with people? Oftentimes we tend to compensate for those disabilities that we have. And I have to believe that this, this man who sat at the gate, sat there day after day, heard something. And he heard the normal crowd, but today was something different. Maybe he'd actually heard stories about Jesus. Because watch what it says here. It says, they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. Who was this man? Jesus of Nazareth. They told him it was passing by. Well, now this guy has a, a perception. He's hearing the crowd. He is compensating for this. He is understanding, wait a minute, I'm hearing that there's a crowd difference that's happening now, and he hears that Jesus is coming by, and then what does he do immediately? They told him Jesus passing by, and what did he start to do? He cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now it's interesting that the crowd called him Jesus of Nazareth. He called himself, he called him Jesus, son of David. That is a, that's a messianic term. And so what he's doing here is this. He has been perceptive, may not be able to see with his eyes, but he's been listening. And he's probably been hearing the stories of Jesus. He may have been hearing stories that Jesus held, healed blind people. I'm blind. But maybe he's actually hearing stories of that this may be the Messiah. And he says, Messiah, mercy. Messiah, mercy. Now, it could be that he's just asking for a coin here. I don't know. I think it's more than that. I think it's more than that. So, as he's crying out, what, did the, what does the crowd do? And those in front of him rebuked him. Shut up. Now, as offensive as that may seem to you right now, think about this, that as you're sitting there and you're watching the Son of God going by and people are, and you're crying out for the Messiah, have mercy on me, and the crowd is telling you, just be silent. Why don't you just shut your mouth? And for most of us, when we suffer that kind of persecution and when somebody attacks us, and what do we tend to do? We tend to cower. We tend to get quiet. But this man didn't stop. It says he cried out all the more, Messiah, mercy, son of David, have mercy on me. 
So we see his plea. His plea was to call out to the Messiah for mercy, but we see his persistence in his life. He persistently cried out. There was something about, something that happened differently within this man. It wasn't just the external things. He, he gave up. I don't care about my reputation anymore. I don't care if you care for me. I don't care if you're telling me to shut up any longer. I see that the Messiah is there, even though I can't see him. I see that the Messiah is there, and I want a relationship with him. I want to connect with him. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. Who's the him? Who's he commanding to be brought? He wants the blind man to be brought to him. Who's going to bring him? The crowd. The crowd is going to believe. So the crowd that just told him to shut up is the crowd that Jesus is going to use to usher this man to him. Can you imagine what that would have felt like? As the crowd is there telling him just to be quiet, now Jesus is telling them to usher this person to Christ. And when Christ comes to him, he says, what do you want me to do for you? That's an interesting question too. I'm blind, I'm begging, can't you figure it out? <laughs> but I think he says he wants something more. He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. He moved from calling Jesus, now Jesus was called the son of uh, Jesus of Nazareth. He called him Jesus, son of David, and now he calls him Lord. Lord, I want to see. And Jesus blesses him, and he says, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. I had said that truly seeing is truly believing. This man could not see with his eyes, but he knew that Jesus was different. There was something that had happened internally. And as the crowd is following Christ, there was something that was drawing him in his heart to the one who's Messiah. And that when Messiah saved him, he didn't just simply save him and give him physical sight, but he had given him something greater, spiritual sight. He could truly see because he truly believes. It's interesting that once somebody is saved and they really get a good grasp of the gospel, what happens to them? They start to praise him, right? You see in verse 43, and immediately he recovered his sight, he followed him, and then he glorified God. There was praise. So this poor man who was physically enabled, um, disabled pleaded for Christ to call and bring him to faith. He was persistent in crying out even as the crowd was against him. And what did God give him? Physical sight and spiritual sight, and it led to praise. Where are you at today? What does Christ look like to you? Is Christ, um, is Christ beautiful to you? Is he the one that you're looking for? Is he the one that you're desiring? Is he the one that you're grabbing onto? The crowd sometimes can be fickle. What did the crowd do? They all glorified God too. They praised God. And it's interesting that this same crowd of people in just a moment are going to be pretty angry with Christ. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. So now, he is on his way to Jerusalem. He had come to Jericho. 
blind man is healed. So now he is going through Jericho, and he's entered Jericho, and he's passing through. I'm not going to stay. Now, it's interesting that when somebody, a dignitary, comes into our town, can you imagine if some major dignitary came into Washington right now? Wouldn't we hope that the dignitary would stay with us? Right, yeah. And, you know, maybe we'd try to put on a party for the dignitary and do all these wonderful things. But what happens if that dignitary's motorcade just went right through our town? They went to Buttsville. I'm sorry, no. <laughs> they went to Belvedere, okay? They went to Hope, or they went to Blairstown, but they weren't going to stop here in Washington. So the crowd was thinking that Jesus is going to stay, but he didn't. He was passing through. Because he had an appointment set. His appointment was with the cross, but before that appointment with the cross, he had one person that he needed to meet. So there was this man, and we know about him. His name is Zacchaeus. And I promise you I won't sing the song this morning. <laughs> there was a man, Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector, and he was rich. Jericho was this interesting town because Jericho was, um, it was one of the four fortresses in that area, and it was, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful town to live in. You know, they always talk about location, location, location. Well, Jericho was a pretty nice location to live in. It was also one of the three places where, in that area, where taxes could be collected. Uh, Capernaum, Jer uh, Jericho, and Jerusalem. So this one place. And so Jericho was one of the places where it was, became like a tax hub. And a person could purchase the rights to, to collect taxes in that particular area. Mosaicus purchased that right. And what the government offered is this. You have to send us a certain percentage every year. Anything more than that, you can keep. Well, it's pretty a lucrative business because they could collect enough to send to the Romans, but then anything more they collected was for them. Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, he had a number of other tax collectors that were out there, but he was the main man in Jericho. He became rich. The problem is this, that the tax collectors were collaborating with the Romans, your enemy. Can you imagine if the United States right now, if we as United States citizens um, were collaborating with our sworn enemies? We're actually doing business with our enemies. How would you think about this person? You would probably think of this person as a traitor. Well, that's what the Jewish people at the time were thinking about Zacchaeus. You have traded away from us. You're oppressing us. They couldn't stand him. Now, the crowd, same crowd that is following Christ, is taking him through this town. And Zacchaeus was a short guy. And Zacchaeus is looking to try to see if he could see Christ, but he can't see. And he's standing up on his toes, he can't see. So then what he does is says, I'm going to run ahead, I'm going to climb a tree. Which, which very honestly, at that time, somebody that was rich and powerful, you would expect that if a rich and powerful person came in right now, we would probably usher them down the front aisle and bring them to the front seat. You could see how much the crowd really didn't like Zacchaeus because he is there looking to be able to see and nobody's moving away. They hated him. Well, Zacchaeus runs ahead, which is really interesting because in that culture, men didn't run. They don't run. 
you know, you have to hike up your gown and then you would have to run. It was, you would expose yourself and it was, it was viewed as humiliating. You remember the story of the um, prodigal son? And the father grabbed his gown and started running after the son. That was just so anti-cultural. It was, it, was, it was not the way you would do it. But more than that, it wasn't just that he was running. He actually climbed a tree. How many adult men that we have here that are going to go climb a tree? That's something a kid does. Right? Uh, maybe some of us do. <laughs> Tuesday night at Royal Rangers, I guess you'll see people climbing trees, right? Um, he climbed a tree. And I don't know if he climbed a tree to avoid the crowd so that they didn't see him and hide in the branches. Sycamore tree was very low cut tree. The branches were huge. You could actually climb up the tree pretty easily. And because he was diminutive in size, he could have hidden in the trees. All he wanted to do was see Jesus. So Zacchaeus hurried up, climbed the tree. But then the problem happened. Who came by him? Jesus. Jesus comes up to the tree and says, Zacchaeus, hurry down. I'm going to your house today. Now, if the crowd was annoyed with the fact that Jesus had called the blind man to him, can you imagine what they must have thought when he's calling Zacchaeus our enemy, our traitor, our collaborator? You're going to actually go and eat dinner with him? Okay, it's one thing that you've given salvation or grace to the oppressed, the blind person, but now you're giving grace to the oppressor? It makes no sense. It makes no sense to them. Immediately after Jesus had told him to hurry down and come down, what did Zacchaeus do? He hurried and came down, and he received him with joy. I find it interesting that the anger of the crowd had turned from who? It turned from Zacchaeus to whom? Jesus. They were angry at the traitorous Zacchaeus, the oppressing Zacchaeus, but now their anger had turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in many ways, Jesus Christ is symbolizing exactly what he's going to do a week later. As he hangs on a bloody cross, he is going to avert the wrath of God for you and for me and for everyone who trusts in him. He was going to stand in the gap for you and for me. And the anger that God would have poured out upon you he took upon himself. The anger the crowd would have poured out on Zacchaeus, Jesus Christ bore himself. Jesus went, was a guest of the man's house. Zacchaeus stood and said, Behold, Lord, half of the goods I've given, I've given to the poor. And if I have defrauded anything of anyone, I'll restore it fourfold. What happens when salvation comes into a person's life? It should change them. The gospel today is interesting because much of the gospel that is being preached today was really not the gospel. It's not about the fact that we're sinners. It's not about the fact that there's a judge. It's not about the fact that there's eternity between hell and heaven. Much of the gospel that is preached today is that God is going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Right? But the gospel that Christ preached was radically different because the gospel that he preached was transformative. This beggar has now become a praiser. 
this oppressor has now become a philanthropist. Radical change of heart and radical change of life. So I ask you, why did Christ come here in the first place? Christ came here to seek and to save those who were lost. And that's the message. Jesus says, I've got a, a path, and if you want to follow me, that's good. Follow me. But the path means that you have to separate your life from something, and you have to set me apart as valuable, infinitely valuable. And it's a path that's going to be a path of suffering. And for some, they're not going to be able to see physically, and God is still going to give them spiritual sight. For some, they can see physically, but they have no spiritual sight. Truly seeing Christ for who he is, is truly believing. There are many people today that know the message of Christ. They know that in four weeks we're going to be celebrating Christ's birth, but they don't know Christ. And I don't know if you're here this morning, and Christ is passing through the town. Are your ears attuned for him? Are you looking to see him? Are you willing to give up anything because he's treasured and prized above all? Are you willing to humiliate yourself in the crowd? Messiah mercy. To receive the mercy of Christ. Are you willing to run and humiliate yourself because you're running to the arms of Christ? Ultimately, he's the one that's running to you and he's the one that's calling you. Lord, I pray.